All right, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your loving presence here this morning. We want to be taught by you, and so, Lord, we want to submit to your word. This morning, would you help us to open our hearts to receive and to be shaped by you, that we can live for you and love others. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. We are continuing on in this book, which is a little letter uh, written to the church scattered throughout Asia Minor at the time from Peter and uh, helping the Christians there uh, consider what it meant to live for God in the time uh, that they were uh, witnessing and working in the world. And here in this passage, we get to uh, kind of a new section. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we head into this passage, I just want to kind of bring us up to speed from last time. Last week, we talked about Peter's call was to be a people. We talked about uh, being a hungry people a couple weeks ago. We talked about being a holy people. We talked about being a, a temple and priestly people last week, that there's a call for the church to be filled with the presence of God and then to live obediently for him. And this week, uh, there's really sort of a two-part call here for us. There's something not to do, and there's something to do. The something that, that, that's not to be done is don't sin. It's to resist sin, and the thing to do is to reveal, to reveal Jesus, that two-part call, something not to do, something to do. When I went on a missions trip to the Dominican Republic when I was about 16, uh, there was a lot of things culturally that we had to get to know what not to do and what to do. And one of the things we were told repeatedly not to do is when we were going to village to village, we were on a medical missions trip, and I was part of a little team with uh, Dr. Eichel and his son Matt, uh, doing dentistry work, but we, there was others with us, nurses and and whatnot, as we went to different villages. And one of the things we were told, we were we had to bring packed lunches every day, and we were told you, there's not fresh water and soap to wash your hands, so when you're eating, make sure you don't actually touch your food with your bare hands. You have to learn how to hold the bag in such a way that uh, you're not exposing the food to the dirt and grime that's on you. And so we were told, don't do this. Don't do this. And then there were some things we had to learn to do. So there's negative things that were for our own protection. Don't, you know, we don't need you all getting sick, right? So don't touch the stuff and then eat it. Don't touch your face all the time. Many of us are so used to just sort of touching our faces without even thinking about it. Don't touch your face. And the thing to do was we had to learn a little bit of Spanish. My Spanish is totally gone at this point, 20 years later, but here we are. Try to learn a bit of Spanish. And uh, there was another dentist with us. We had two chairs and people would come. And all we would really do, I had to wash instruments, but all we were doing in terms of dentistry was pulling teeth. Uh, there wasn't time or room, you know, to do major work. So if someone came and there was an issue, uh, one of our two, we had Dr. Eichel and then uh, sort of a, a national local dentist, they would just pull, pull the tooth. And then they'd pack it, you know, they'd freeze it and then they'd pack it. And try, you try to have to clamp down on the packing to clot, you know, and just kind of keep, let it heal and sort of carry on with the day because there wasn't a lot of follow-up going on. And so we were being trained how to say bite down for half an hour on the packet, on the, on the gauze in your mouth. 
And we were saying this, Dr. Eichel, bless him, was saying it probably more than I was. Um, but there's a few of us trying to help people remember to do this. And we're trying to learn in Spanish how to say bite down for half an hour. Well, it didn't take too long before the Dominican dentist turned to us and said, what are you saying? And so we repeated what we thought was bite down for half an hour. And he said, that's not bite down for half an hour. That's bite your donkey for half an hour. We got a kick out of it. There is something not to do. Don't touch your food. There is something to do. Learn some Spanish, probably correctly, ideally accurately. We've been telling these dear people to bite their donkeys for half an hour before we, for probably a good morning before we were told otherwise. But a similar thing, a two-part call from Peter, resist something, don't do this, and reveal something, do this instead. And what he says is resist sin, resist evil, battle it, and then he says reveal Jesus, speak Jesus, do this, through your conduct. There's something not to do, and there's something to do. And this first point is regarding resisting sin. And he talks about the Christian life as a battle and as a witness. He says, resist sin, and then point people to Jesus by how you live. If you say you want to live in the kingdom of God, and you want to follow Jesus, there's an element of resistance to evil, and there is an element of choosing to live a good life that honors God and reveals him to the world. I, had a, I was visiting with a friend this week, and we were talking about how sometimes in the Christian life there can be a desire for something new or something exciting, and that can be, that can be fine, that can be good. Um, but it can also be sort of this fleeting desire for a thing that feels good without addressing deeper issues in one's life. And so we were saying it's, it's, it's a shame when we go after something because it's, it's emotionally exciting, but then there's all this sort of dysfunction happening underneath the surface. And it's like, I think God wants to deal with the dysfunction, not just have you have a good time once in a while. And of course, there's a joy to following Jesus, but God's heart is to bring deeper healing and life to us. And sometimes that means getting to issues that are sort of under the surface, isn't it? Uh, things that are maybe difficult once they're exposed. Uh, that God wants to address. And so do we resist sin? And are we revealing Jesus? Resisting and revealing. Take a look at verse 11 with me. Look how Peter starts this section. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And notice how he starts that. He says, Beloved, beloved. And this is, uh, it kind of marks a new section in the letter from this point on through the rest of chapter two into chapter three into chapter four is all about your conduct. It's all about whether how you live is actually pointing people to Jesus or pointing to something else. And that as a church, we bear witness to Jesus through how we act, through how we live. And then he calls them, so beloved, he calls them very endearing, very pastoral, but then he calls them again sojourners and exiles. And that means that as the church is, is seeking to live for Jesus in the world, as Christians are seeking to live for Jesus in the world, there's an element in which we don't really feel that we belong. And sometimes maybe you've experienced that in your own life, if you've made a commitment to following Jesus, 
that in certain scenarios, you're around people and you feel, I don't really belong here. Maybe it's the conversation's taking a turn and you're like, I don't feel like this is appropriate. Or maybe there's something outright dangerous or evil and you're like, I should not participate in this. I don't feel like I quite belong here. Or maybe it's just the reality of life and, you know, you see the brokenness and you see the sickness and you see the death around you. And there's just a sense of things are not well. Something's wrong in the world. Things are not right. I don't feel like I fit here. And Peter's speaking to that in some way when he calls the church to be sojourners and exiles, that they're recognizing that in some ways where they're at is not where they will be someday. That there's a sense of, of movement towards God and towards God's future, that we're, we're already there because of Jesus, but we're not yet there in its fullness until he comes again in glory. And so as sojourners, Peter makes a point of saying we need to resist the real sin that's around us and point people to Jesus as we sojourn, as we feel like we're in exile. Now, sometimes you can read a passage like this about sojourning and exiling, and there's a sense of, you know, we're not at home. And we can get the wrong impression. We can start to think, well, maybe the world is just bad. Maybe the physical planet is just bad for us or something. Maybe we're not really made for life here on earth. But that would be to make a mistake, I think, in what Peter is emphasizing here. Peter does not look to undo Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 and 2 very clearly affirm that creation is good. God's world is good. You being a human being is good. All of that is good. In fact, it's very good by the time you get it all put together at the end. It's really, really good. Creation's not the problem. Sin is the problem. It's not the physical world that's the problem. It's sin that's the problem. I know so often, uh, I shouldn't say so often, but at times when talking with people and talking about leadership issues and um, sometimes people will say things like, oh man, this would be so easy if we didn't have to deal with people. You know? <laughs> we could just do this thing and we didn't have to deal with people along the way. And there's some truth to that because obviously as, as people, we could, you know, we butt heads and there's all kinds of personality stuff and issues that go on. But the point is so often, it's not that people are, are the issue, it's our, our sins the issue, isn't it? Our own selfishness and our own brokenness become the issue. It's not that people are the problem, but our, our sinfulness. Sometimes we'll say, well, that's human nature. It's like, well, it's not really human nature maybe as God intended. I think it's just our sinful nature sometimes is the problem. It's just our sin. That's the issue. But God's creation is good and he's made us for his good world, for his temple cosmos. We talked about that a little bit last week when we were talking about temple and priest language, and he calls it good. But this creation is subject to decay because of our sin. That's, that's Paul's point in Romans 8. Things are not well. And so we're sojourners, not because the world's physical and we're hoping to just go be spiritual beings floating in clouds and playing harps. That's not what we're sojourning for. We're sojourners because we're in a world that's marred by sin and we're looking forward to the new heavens and new earth when God's redemption will come and make things right and well again. That's what we're sojourning through. We sojourn in a world where we recognize that many around us uh, are not seeking to resist evil. 
that there's societal pressures and issues in our time which are in rebellion against God. And so we really don't feel at home when we find ourselves in those sorts of situations. And so Peter tells the church, resist the sin in the world around you. And look at what he emphasizes here in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Resist the passions of the flesh. Resist the pleasures of the world that are rooted in sin. Resist the pleasures that can come when you pursue greed and if you pursue pride or lust or sloth or vengeance. Resist those things. Those things, Peter says, are tempting. Those things are really enticing to give into that, to pursue that. But he says, don't do it. There's a real war being raged for your soul. Don't be naive about that. You are in a battlefield, says Peter. Don't, be, don't forget what's really going on. He says you need to abstain from and resist those temptations because if you hold on to those, those evil desires, those sinful desires, those will eventually bring harm to your life. In the same way, if I give in to the desire when I was in the Dominican, to just rub the dirt all over my face. There'd be real consequences, right? If I gave in to the desire to just, you know, scratch the itch and rub my eye with my dirty hand, there'd be real issues. Resist the temptation to do that, says Peter. Don't do that. And that's a small example, a silly example. But there's a, a bigger issue that Peter points to here. Don't do that. And resisting sin isn't just about our physical actions, it's about our thoughts as well, isn't it? I think of Jesus. Uh, he says in the Gospels, there's a point where Jesus says, you know, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. But I say, even if you look at a woman lustfully, you're committing adultery in your heart. So Peter, Jesus sort of takes it up a notch saying, your sin is not just what you do. There's also sin that can happen when you're thinking a certain way. When you're giving into that thought and pursuing something sinful in your heart and mind, uh, that is as dangerous. Jesus says, right? You need to be careful uh, of what's going on in your mind, not just in your body. Uh, I was, was reading a little bit about uh, resisting temptation, and I came across some great quotes from the Desert Fathers. Now, the Desert Fathers and Mothers, that tradition, uh, is early centuries in the history of the church. And what had happened was uh, Christianity was essentially illegal for a long time. And then under Constantine, uh, is, Christianity became legalized. It became the state religion, sort of in the 300s AD. And at that point, it was possible then to become a Christian and not really mean it. You could just sort of nominally be a Christian because you happened to be in the culture that was Christian, but you didn't maybe didn't need to make a real commitment to Jesus. You were just sort of Christian because you, your family was Christian. You were born into Christian. And so this became an issue for the church because they realized there's people in our churches who aren't don't really want to follow Jesus. They're just sort of saying they're Christians because they kind of grew up in this thing because now it's legal and everyone's sort of a Christian. And so a group of people started to leave the churches and leave the cities and go out into the desert and just try and be alone with God and sort of get things sorted. And there's all sorts of quite hilarious stories of the things that they did. And some are undoubtedly legendary. But the idea was to get away from the temptation and get things right with God. That was the desire. 
and they often talked about resisting temptation. I want to read to you two examples of battle against sin from the Desert Fathers. Listen to this. This is quite interesting. Listen to this. This is Abba Gerontus of Petra. He said this. He said, there's many who are tempted by the delights of the flesh, indulged in immorality in the mind without any physical contact. Sounds like Jesus, right? He says we can do this as well. While we're preserving physically, they indulge mentally in immorality. Beloved, it's good to do what's written. Let each one of us keep our hearts with all vigilance. The idea here being you can, the resisting of sin that Peter calls us to, that Jesus calls us to, involves more than just what you do. It involves guarding your heart and your mind as well. The second example is from Abba Pomen. And these are collections of sayings from the Desert Fathers that have been collected over time. But he said to Abba John the Dwarf, that's a good name, man, isn't it? Abba John the Dwarf. Abba Pomen said that he prayed God to take away his passions so he could become free from care. So he went and told an old man this, I find myself in peace without an enemy. I've asked God to free me from all my passions. And the old man said to him, go and ask God to stir up warfare so that you can regain the affliction and the humility that you used to have. For it is by warfare that the soul makes progress. So he, he turned to God, and when the warfare came, he no longer prayed that it might be taken away. Instead, he prayed, Lord, give me strength for the fight. How many of us, when we're faced with something, our first response is, Jesus, take it away? Jesus, get the thing out of here. Don't want it. Could it be that, and that's not a wrong sort of thing to pray, I don't think, but could it be also that there are times where we need to ask, God, give me the courage and the strength and the fortitude to walk through this? And that in, in walking through that difficulty, God is doing a work in your heart of shaping you, of transforming you. Could be. Now, there's some wisdom here, I think, from the desert, but there's also uh, a real sort of lack of engaging with the people around you. And it's interesting because Peter says to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and in some sense we might say, I just need to get away from everything then. I'm just going to run off, go be a hermit on an island somewhere. But then he says this, keep your conduct, verse 12, among the Gentiles honorable. So Peter expects us to resist sin, but to still be in the world, to still be present in a sinful culture. He doesn't expect us to be like the Desert Fathers and just run off somewhere, but he expects us to live among those who don't yet know Jesus. And so we're called to live godly lives as witness to those who don't believe. And that sounds a lot like Matthew 5:16, doesn't it? Where Peter where Jesus says, "Let your light shine among others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven." So what Peter's saying here is you need to resist sin. Yes, absolutely, but you don't you don't turn away from loving people in your resisting sin. You still need to be engaged with the culture around you. And this is significant because I think when we talk about being uh, priests and exiles or pilgrims, 
it can sound like justification to just withdraw from the world, doesn't it? Sometimes we can have that desire to just pull away from things around us. I, I remember talking to a friend once who was no longer coming to church, and I was asking him why he felt that that was what he needed to do. And he said, well, part of it is there's there's people there who are sinful. <laughs> it's like, yeah, welcome to church. But anyway, uh, there's people there who are doing things I don't agree with, and the Bible says not to be around people who who do evil. And I was like, well, that's fair, sure. The uh, Bible's also really clear about not forsaking gathering together, so we can battle this back and forth if you want, throw verses at each other all day. But the point being, yes, there's brokenness and and challenges and dysfunction even in the body of Christ, but that doesn't give us a reason to just pull away from everything. We're called instead to engage with love as best as we can with each other. And that refers not just to in-house, but also with the world around us. Uh, the world doesn't need a church that disappears. The world needs a church that's present within the culture, seeking to transform it with the love and the grace of Jesus. And so often we can have different kind of responses to how do we then live as citizens in the world. Look at verse 12 again. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's something here that Peter imagines that Christians are involved in normal everyday life with people who don't believe in God. They're engaged in life out in the world somewhere, not not withdrawn from it, but present within it. And he says, your conduct is what points people to Jesus. Your good conduct means something. It's a witness. It's a witness to who you serve. So if the church, there can be a few different ways that a church, and this can kind of go deeply more culturally in terms of how we, how we think about Christian mission. But sometimes the church, we can feel like we just need to withdraw to stay pure. We can feel like we just need to pull away and isolate. And the problem with that is we end up forsaking the Great Commission in the name of purity. And often our wanting to withdraw comes with a, a because we're fearful of something. There's some problems there. Sometimes, as a church, we can be so involved in the world that we become exactly like the world. We assimilate the same culture. And we take on the same sin. And we start to celebrate it and think of it as okay. And when we do that, we've We've forsaken a call to gospel obedience in the name of compassion. We've sought to become present in the culture so much so that we've just become the culture. And there's no distinctive Christian witness. The other option can be to fight the world. Because we know what's true and we're mad about how things are around us. And so we're going to, we're going to resist and fight, fight all of the bad guys, you know, in the name of truth. But the Jesus way, rather than abandoning the culture and rather than assimilating the culture and rather than engaging in political warfare against the culture, the Jesus way, the Peter way here, is that we're to be in the world and yet not of the world. We live among those who don't know Jesus and through our love and through godly witness, we point them to Christ. Not by resisting, not by withdrawing, not by assimilating but being a transformative presence within that culture. I was on a, a call the other day, and someone mentioned to me how 
it was it had taken time for them to realize that their workplace was the place of Christian mission. It was the place where God had put them. Uh, it was the place where they were being called to live out the gospel and to quite literally do this, to to point people to Jesus through how they lived, that their good conduct would point people to Jesus. And that's why so often I find when I'm preaching, I well, I probably repeat myself quite a bit, but one of the things I tend to repeat, I know, is to say, let's live this out in our marriages and in our families and in your workplace and in your school, because that's quite literally how the Bible describes us, that we, we live out our faith in Christ in all the places where we go about life. And as we live that out, we are pointing people to Jesus. And so what kind of attitude is meant to mark that as we, as we live out our faith publicly in the world? And really, the attitude is one of, of submission, of humility, of being a servant. Look again at verse 13 and all the ways Peter sort of describes this. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme or the governors who are sent to punish those who do evil. Um, that's, I love how Peter, it's, this is a good assumption of how government should work. He assumes and hopes that the government will punish those who are evil. This is a good situation. This is very different from other situations. This is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And all through that, and then through the rest of, the, of chapter 2 and chapter 3, it's all about living as servants. All about our conduct in the world as servants. And there's, he makes some great points here. He talks about being subject to civil authorities, right? And he's echoing Paul's words from Romans 13 about submission and humility. He calls us to do good and, and therefore to, to sort of silence people who, who might try to make up lies. He said, let your conduct, let your actions sort of speak of your love for people. He talks about living as free people. He talks about honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, loving others, uh, honor the emperor, fear God, right? And notice Peter does something quite neat. It's, it's easy to jump over, I think. He says, honor everyone. He also says, honor the emperor. Now, it would have been easy or kind of assumed that he might say, honor the emperor more than you honor everyone else. But he doesn't. In fact, what Peter does is sort of elevate everyone to emperor level and lower emperor down to everybody level. He just says, honor everyone. He doesn't make a special claim about the emperor. He just says, you honor, you honor the everyday person the same as you would the emperor. Honor everyone. Honor everyone. You give everyone the same honor and respect. And it's not the emperor who's feared. Who's feared? God's feared. Not the emperor. God's feared, right? And believers, he calls to a sort of tender love together. And then even calls, and we'll get into this next week, calls the, the servants or the slaves to be subject to their masters, even if their masters are evil. And that's an interesting point. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next time. What's he doing? What does he do with all this? There's a few, a few things he's doing. And the first thing is he says, as much as possible, and this is for us today as well, as much as possible, Live with a sense of honor and servanthood and humility uh, to those around you and to those who are over you, whether that's your employer, 
whether that's leaders in your town or city or province or nation, whatever that is, do what you can as much as possible to walk with honor and humility. Um, now, are there moments where Christians disobey God? Or not God. Well, that probably can happen too. But where, where Christians have the room for civil disobedience if the government is going sideways. And there is room for that biblically. But here, Peter's applying a really good general rule of saying, as much as possible, live this way. Even to the emperor. The emperor thinks he's God, right? At this time, the emperor's not a nice guy. Emperor thinks he can take on divine rights and do whatever he wants. He says, honor that guy. That guy, God's put there. He might be evil, but you honor him as much as possible. Now, of course, we see examples of God's people choosing to disobey evil empires when there's sinful pressure, right? We can think of Daniel. We can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can think of the martyrs in Revelation who are calling out for justice against evil empires around them. But Peter makes the case here that as long as it doesn't violate God's command, you work with and you submit to the, the authorities around you. You seek to love. You seek to honor them. Even if they're evil, let your character and your conduct be an example. And if you need to disobey on moral grounds or on creedal grounds, do so with humility and grace and wisdom and love. Because even, even if the government is harassing you or persecuting you, which which happens to the church here in the New Testament, uh, even when that happens, you can submit with love and grace. Uh, and, and of course, who's the, who's the ultimate example of that is Jesus himself. And so Peter makes the point, you know, you will be persecuted and harassed and mocked, but don't let people do that to you because you've been vindictive or violent or, you know, sort of full of yourself. He says, let them see your examples in love and let them uh, realize who it is you're serving. And so there's a real case for honoring, for honoring those who've been put over us, for seeking to, to submit as servants and to live as best we can within even a difficult culture. The Bible makes a, a clear, clear standard for that. And in other places, the Bible makes a real case for recognizing that there's evil, demonic influence in society, and it's not good, right? Uh, John particularly does that. So you have Peter on one hand saying honor, and John on the other hand saying this thing's evil. Watch out. But the call here at the end of the day, as I said, is to reveal Jesus, to be faithful to Jesus. And there's no thought here. Peter doesn't go into a thing about, you know, trying to, trying to overthrow the government or overthrow slavery because at this time, Christians, the church has no sort of influence at all. They're not expecting they can do much of anything. And so Peter writes very sort of pastorally and very sort of practically. He just says, listen, as a Christian, in the situation you find yourself, live humbly like a servant, live like Jesus. And so for you today, wherever you might be, maybe you're in a difficult work situation. Maybe you're in a difficult school situation where it just feels like there's all kinds of stuff around you that you want to run away from and resist. Or maybe you're uh, in a family situation that's very difficult and you just, you know, you don't know how to live. You don't know how to kind of walk that out well. Uh, Peter says, seek to love those around you. Seek to honor those around you and let them see through as you're attempting to live for Jesus and do good works. Let, 
let that be an example to others of who you ultimately serve, that you serve Jesus. Let that be your, your witness. Let that be what you reveal to those around you. And when we think of Jesus, of course, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus didn't stand up for his rights. He actually laid down his rights. Jesus was not successful in any sort of worldly sense by overthrowing Herod or Pilate. Right? He doesn't ride in on a war horse to his coronation. He rides in on a donkey to his crucifixion. He's harassed and mocked and arrested by those in authority over him, and he submits to it. He chooses not to, not to fight back. He chooses not to yell at them. He chooses to love them, and in fact, from the cross, chooses to forgive them, saying they don't know what they're doing. And it's Jesus, through his own self-sacrificial love and a, you know, a handful of sort of ragamuffin crazy guys, he's 12. It's through Jesus' love and these sort of nobodies that God's transforming powers brought to bear on the world. And as much as Jesus doesn't ride into Rome to oust the emperor, Rome itself is eventually undone. And any cruel power of the state, any sort of Babylon to come, and this is what Revelation's about, any sort of future Babylon to come, any sort of false leader, any sort of antichrist that's to come will ultimately be defeated by the Lamb of God who has bled for us. And so we can walk with a sense of, of prayer and love and humility and joy, knowing he's already won the victory. And as we wait for him, as we live in the in-between time, we're called to walk with honor and with grace as much as we are able. So those two things, Peter says, abstain from sin and live honorably among everyone, even when that's difficult. And so my prayer for us as we head to the communion table is that we would ask the Holy Spirit to grow in us that sort of servanthood, that sort of humility, that as we seek to live for Jesus, as we walk with him, we can point people to him, we can reveal Jesus by how we react, how we respond to things. And maybe for some of you, this is, you know, quite personally, there's people in leadership that you tend to be frustrated with, you know? It's difficult to love them. Um, and so this week, maybe you can choose to, to love and pray for those that you get frustrated with and seek to, seek to honor them, as Peter recommends, even if that's difficult. And instead of lashing out at others, we can seek to love Jesus and to honor others and to point people to him, to resist sin and reveal Christ. So let's pray to that end. And as we come to the table this morning, pray that God would do that work in our hearts as well. Jesus, we want to thank you this morning that as much as we are sojourners and as much as we may feel uh, that we are not uh, where we belong in the world, we also know, God, that you call us to live and be present here in this world, that you call us to love others, that you call us uh, to humility and to servanthood. So, Lord, we just pray this morning, as we hear your word, as we sit at your feet, 
as we spend time with you. Jesus, is there areas in our life where we have not honored, where we've been less than loving, less than humble, where we haven't followed the Jesus way, we followed our own way? Lord, where we haven't resisted sin, but we've given into it. And Lord, for each of us, and as we think through those things, and as we invite your spirit to come and convict us and to challenge us, we pray, Jesus, that you would remind us that you are truly the one who resisted sin, that you are the only one who has honored and loved without fault, that you're the one we look to and that it's by your grace, not because of our performance, but because of your great love for us that we can come to this table, that we can know your salvation and your redemption. So, Lord, today I pray that by your Spirit you would come and where there's places in our hearts where we hold on to our pride and our, to our, our bitterness, Lord, would you come and slowly undo that and with the balm of your grace and your spirit, come with your comfort and heal those wounds in our hearts. Lord, if there's areas in our life where we are, are, are battling sin, or maybe we've stopped battling and we've just sort of given into it, and it's become a habit. Lord, we want to surrender that to you today, and we pray by your Spirit you would come and bring your conviction and also teach us, Lord, show us the way out. Your Word says that when we are tempted, you always provide the way of escape. Lord, help us to find that way of escape when we face temptation, when we're faced with our faced with the temptation to sin. Lord, to, to step out of that, to get away from it, to not do that so that we can do what's good and right and, and upworthy. Lord, as we come to the table, we remember that it's by your blood and by your grace that we're welcomed, that we're accepted, that we're redeemed, that we're chosen. Lord, we don't deserve to be here. It's by your blood and your mercy that you brought us here to this place. That, Lord, at this table, we experience your nourishment, your life given for us. That it's here that we remember that we can't resist sin on our own. That we can't even live holy lives on our own. That it's only by you, Lord, that we can live as sojourners, as your people. And so as we come to this table, Lord, may it be a place of forgiveness and a place of healing. That we lay down our brokenness and our sin and receive again the welcome from you that your body and your blood has given for us while we were still sinners, you died for us. So Jesus, today, remind us of our sinfulness so that we may be reminded afresh of your grace. And Lord, as we come to this table, may it be a, a statement of saying, Jesus, today I want to resist sin. And I want to reveal you by how I live and by how I speak. Help me to do that well, even when I fail. Help me to pursue that, to live into that, because that's what you call me to. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts, and would you give us a, a passion, Lord, to reach the lost, those that we're called to love and to honor and to serve. Give us hearts, Lord, to see your kingdom come in our families and in our workplaces and in our schools. Lord, help us to live for you in such a way that others are pointed 
to you, Jesus. May our lives be like signposts pointing people to you. Lord, as we come today, do that work in us to fill us afresh with your spirit.